Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. This is Eric Golden, and my guest this week is Corey Hofstein, the founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Corey offers a fascinating and distinctive take on his investing process. We cover topics like portfolio allocation, diversification, and the innovative approach known as return stacking. We wrap up with lessons learned from 15 years of running his own asset management firm. Please enjoy this conversation with Corey Hofstein. Corey, thanks for joining. I'm excited to do this. You are prolific on FinTwit. You have your own company. You've done a lot of things. I thought FinTwit would be a fun place to start just because you had a tweet that I would say haunted me because when you asked it, I assumed it was obvious. And then I went and searched it and you do these little challenge problems. And you said, what was the origin of the 60-40 portfolio, which is quoted all the time in finance. People are always it's on every major business news station comparing stuff to 60-40. I thought it was Bogle or Vanguard. I just I was like, I know it's somewhere and I just got to go find it. And I want to solve this riddle. And I have spent way too many nights trying to solve it. So let's start with where did the 60-40 portfolio come from? Well, first, let me start by saying thank you for having me on the podcast. The actual tweet wasn't a question. The actual tweet, if I'm remembering correctly, was I said, I find it amazing that as an industry, we've all converged on this 60-40 portfolio. It is as you point out, the example given everywhere. And in my experience, whenever I talk with a financial advisor, if you ask them what their dollar-weighted book of businesses or what portfolio do they have most of their assets in, it's a 60-40. My tweet was, I find it amazing that no one actually knows where the 60-40 came from, which is a little bit more inflammatory because I'm not asking. I'm telling people they don't actually know. And the person who clued me into this was actually Auntie Ilmanen at AQR. I was having a conversation with him, and he mentioned, and I think this was even in his latest book, that he could not find where the 6040 came from. And so I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I can't find it either. But when I tweeted, I find it amazing that nobody knows. Well, you can be certain that a whole lot of people were certain they knew. And so you got the answers. Oh, it was Bogle. It was Markowitz. It was this. It was that. There is a paper I found that goes back, I believe it was the 1950s. It was about the stock bond relative allocation in pensions. And what this paper looked at was basically solving this risk-averse utility function. You have expected returns for stocks. You have expected returns for bonds. What was the right proportion to maximize this utility function? And in that particular paper... The answer was a 60-40. And that is the earliest 
example I can find of someone actually recommending a 60-40 portfolio. And that was for corporate pensions at the time. Other than that, I suspect we may have just emerged upon it organically. It may have just been, hey, 50-50 works and we want a little bit more equity and it's 60-40. And sometimes the best things just come out of the evolution of time. And and the 60-40 might have been just that. I still find it remarkable. I feel like I'm going to find it. There's got to be something more than that to every advisor quoting it. I hope you do find it because it is something that's haunted me as well. But it's a fun one to ask people because everyone is certain there's got to be an answer. And spent a lot of time looking and I haven't found it. So that leads to one of the main topics I wanted to discuss with you is if advisors are mostly thinking that the base case is 60% equities and 40% stocks is the allocation that we all start from then that naturally becomes a benchmark that everyone compares to. And you and your firm have done a lot of work thinking about this and creating products. So when you sit down with advisors, how do you have them think about this allocation problem? So you mentioned the 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. On paper, one of the few things just about everyone in this industry will agree with is that diversification is good. We will disagree in this industry on everything. But if you say everything else held equal, do you want a more or less diversified portfolio? Again, everything else held equal, doing a lot of heavy lifting there. But everything else held equal, do you want more or less diversified? There is no rational reason why you would ever want less diversified. Increasing your diversification increases your compound rate of growth, and it also increases the certainty with which your wealth grows. The problem is the experience of diversification. Countless advisors have stories about trying to introduce diversification. And it does two things. One, it's a question of the products that they're trying to find. But two, it's how do they put it into the portfolio? Because it's not as simple as just adding diversification. To make room for an alternative asset class or alternative investment strategy in a portfolio, you also have to subtract those core stocks and bonds. And it's that subtraction that can cause a lot of angst. So just as an example, I was running these numbers the other day. I have a particular affinity for trend following and managed future strategies. And I said, well, I know trend following and managed futures did particularly poorly in the 2010s, but just how poorly did it do relative to a 60-40? Managed futures as an industry, and I'm going to use the SOCGen CTA index here as the benchmark, underperformed a 60-40 by just about 800 basis points annualized. It underperformed 80% of rolling one-year periods. It underperformed every calendar year, which is mostly when clients look, except for 2014. But in 2014, a 60-40 was up 10%. Managed Futures was up 15 Who cares? No one's upset with a 10% return. So you look at all this and you say, okay, ex-ante, before that decade started, diversification seemed great, And I'm going to steal a line from Cliff Asnes here from AQR. The reality is like statistical time and behavioral time are very different. The statistical time of I know diversification means having to say you're sorry, to quote my friend Brian Portnoy. I know things are going to underperform, but I know diversification is good versus living 10 years of telling your clients, I'm sorry I didn't put you in low cost vanilla stocks and bonds. And I put you in this more opaque, higher cost, less tax efficient trading strategy. No advisor survives that unless they fire the strategy. So to go back to your original question, what is the conversation? I've never sat down with an advisor who didn't 
want more diversification in their portfolio. There are some that are the true diehard bogleheads that just say low cost stocks and bonds, but the majority of advisors want to figure out a way to get more diversification. They have just lived and been scarred by the behavioral reality of trying to do it. And so I spend a lot of time thinking through how can we make the introduction of diversifiers easier. And so it feels like you're dealing with the pain and trauma of I've got punched in the face nine times. So maybe all of that's great and diversification sounds good in a textbook, but it's not worth my clients asking me questions and being upset about it. I'm also thinking of I split the world up into maybe three large buckets. You have the institutionalized or the heavily focused on alternatives, where alternatives is what they want. They're always looking for it. They want to get into that fund that the allocation, some private credit fund that nobody else can get in. They're just on the hunt. On the other side, maybe you have the bogle heads who are saying, I just want passive. Diversification is great, but what's most important is low fees. And then you've got the middle of the world where they might use it. They use it for some clients. They're not sure. And it feels like that's the market that's going to have the most trauma from this didn't work because they're getting branded as these are expensive, exotic strategies that didn't live up broadly. Now, I'm, I'm painting this a horribly broad brush. There's great people that do this. But how do you not get sucked into this is too complex. It's too hard to find manager selection. Why should I trust this or attempt to do this again? My personal anecdotes really speak to my experience with financial advisors. And there's sort of two cohorts that I've noticed that exist in the world of financial advisors. And I don't mean to make this ageist, but I do notice it tends to be an age thing. And, and the older demographic, historically, their value proposition to clients was outperforming the market. And so to them, performance is important. And just again, anecdotally, I tend to see a lot of performance chasing among that cohort. And so it's no surprise that when alternatives go out of favor, they're quick to get rid of them. Because if they're telling their clients that I'm going to beat your benchmark, that's my value proposition. I pick good managers. I pick good investment strategies. I build good portfolios. Having something in there that's lagging optically looks bad. Then you have another cohort, and this tends to, again, skew younger, which has agreed that beating the benchmark is a horrible value proposition as a business. Because especially in the world of large cap stocks, it's just really hard to do. And so even if you're really good as a financial advisor, what is the probability that you're going to beat the benchmark on a rolling one-year basis? You're disappointing your clients like a coin flip most of the time. We should acknowledge that's a horrible value proposition, I say, as an asset manager, who that's part of my value proposition. But what these younger financial advisors have decided, and I think quite astutely, is that their value proposition should be financial planning. And therefore, asset allocation and investment management is more of a means to an end. They work very closely with their families to figure out what those families want to achieve. And that doesn't mean that the investment management isn't important, but it doesn't come first. And so for them, they often look at the idea of, well, do I want to spend time evaluating managers and understanding alternatives and how all these diversifiers work? And if it's just going to lead to a portfolio my client can't stick with, that defeats the whole purpose. So they tend to shy away from alternatives as well. And again, I think there is a bit of an asymmetry here. Maybe even you could call it a principal agent problem because you have these advisors that are being hired on behalf of these families and they don't want to be fired. And so they're going to take certain actions that'll prevent them from being fired, even if in expectation it's a worse outcome for the family because the family will never know 
the alternative scenario. But in almost all those cases, it usually leads to alternatives being thrown out the door. And so in that scenario, go back to you you ran the data and you have this horrible period. What is the counterexample of why it makes sense to participate when you have such deep periods of underperformance? Yeah, you just have to rewind the clock another decade. The 2010s were a horrible period for managed futures. No, it was a great decade for managed futures and a horrible decade for a 60-40. The 2000s. You had an entire lost decade for stocks in the 2000s. Now, that just happens to be because we arbitrarily assign a calendar date to the returns of markets, and it just so happened we hit the dot-com peak almost dead on when you flip the calendar over to the 2000s. But you think about, all right, so from the top of the dot-com peak to the bottom of the market in 2009, that's just not a great environment for stocks. And so diversifiers, managed futures in particular, but other hedge fund strategies did incredibly well during that era of macro volatility, having opportunities to go long and short different asset classes was tremendously valuable. There were long extended trends in commodities and currencies that they were able to take advantage of. And so what you see is if you just go back one decade, managed futures did incredibly well. In fact, I think I'd have to double check this, but I believe if you start in 1999, managed futures and U.S. equities have basically ended up in the same place over the last 23 years. Just very different paths. That's perfect. If you got two things that end up in the same place with very different paths, that's the holy grail. But again, could you stick with it? Because the 2010s were a pretty painful sideways period. And the reality is most people didn't even have access to managed futures in a mutual fund until the 2010s. So they look back on all this great performance in the 2000s and they go, that would have been nice. I'm going to buy it now. And then year after year after year, they have to remind themselves. And again, I don't blame them. After five years, you really start to question, well, is the magic gone? Has something changed in the market? Is there a reason this doesn't work anymore? Now, I find it a little interesting because stocks can have a lost decade and people don't seem to lose their faith in stocks. But I think there's a big difference between something that has what you would expect to be an underlying true fundamental reason for growth. If you ask people to rank their confidence in what's going to eventually have a positive return, stocks and bonds should be way up there. When you start to get to talk about hedge fund trading strategies, well, you might say that thing could lose its mojo. Maybe my confidence is a lot lower. And so again, as people try to update their beliefs relative to what's happening, often that's heavily colored by recent experience in the market. And you go through something like the 2010s and you say, well, this just doesn't seem like the juice is worth the squeeze from a behavioral perspective anymore. I want you to double click into something that I think you'll find probably overly simplistic. But if you listen to it the wrong way, you can hear it differently. If you have two things that end up in the same place and they take different paths, you said that was great. You lit up for a quant that's very exciting. I think for a non-quant, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Explain why that's important. So there's two aspects here. The first is, if I've got two things that end up in the same place but take very different paths, then I can split my portfolio among them, and I should just have a smoother ride. That's interesting, because I'll always prefer a smoother ride over a less smooth ride. I'm less likely to make mistakes. I mean, let's consider the fact that, for example, equities had multiple 35 40 50% drawdowns over the last 20 years. So this presumes that I could stick with whatever I'm investing in. I said equities got to the same place as managed futures. Well, it did so with way more volatility. Do I trust myself to not make a behavioral mistake? 
I hope I do, but I can't speak for everyone. And so if I can add something to the portfolio, if I can say maybe 50% of equities and 50% of managed futures, and my portfolio growth is going to be a lot less volatile, that's to me very interesting. But there's actually a more subtle point too. And this one's a little bit mathematical and this will put my sort of quant hat on here. What I didn't mention was rebalancing between the two. And when you start to talk about rebalancing, that by maintaining the, say, 50-50 split between them and keeping that portfolio volatility lower, the math of geometric growth means that you could, in theory, grow that portfolio faster than if you were just in one asset or the other. Now, that may seem a little weird. If I say A and B are going to end up at the same place, but I create a portfolio of A and B and I rebalance them and somehow it ends up above where either of them ended, that's a little weird. But that can happen because you're not suffering large drawdowns necessarily. But if you can reduce your drawdowns, if you lose 50%, you need 100% to get back to break even by rebalancing and keeping your portfolio volatility lower, you allow your portfolio to compound at a faster rate. Yeah, it's interesting talking to people that come from outside of financial training, so they might not understand that. There's so many things, and I've experienced this recently, of talking to really smart engineers that weren't financially trained. And it's really hard in finance to point to stuff that you can be like, we don't really have as many ground truths. You worked in physics or math, and you believe this. and We don't really have much that we can hang our hat on and say like, no, this is my model. This is actually a thing. And so diversification is definitely one of them. Definitely an industry of faiths, to your point. There's no ground truth. There's scientific evidence, and I'm doing air quotes for everyone listening. It's scientific evidence, but it's based on some empirical facts about the world in the past. And the world changes, and markets are reflexive, and it's hard to know what is fundamental truth going forward. And so to your point, I used to believe there were fundamental truths earlier in my career. As I've gotten older, I've gone, no, we just all have our own faiths. We all go to our own church. And I just happen to really believe in this faith over here. But I need to acknowledge to myself, there's a large faith-based element to everything we're doing. It's a really good framework to think about it, because it also makes sense for why the debates get so intense and so heated amongst people that if you attack their world, for a lot of investing nerds, I don't know why this is common. I've seen it in different paths. There's these things that happen. In crypto, it was, I read the Bitcoin white paper, then I bought Ethereum. I just to do these things. Like when I was a young teenager, I'm a value investor. And then all your hopes and dreams get destroyed when they tell you it doesn't work. And then you're like, I want to be a growth investor. It's like these natural progressions. And then you end up in the space of what you were really doing was going to a synagogue, a church, a mosque, and not realizing that there's some commonality, but for the most part, they're their own religions and they feel very differently about the world. And they also don't like giving compliments to the other Like This is out of favor. This is in favor. And whatever's in vogue is what's selling at that time. I love that framework. Let's go into the idea of return stacking. The original, when I originally reached out to you, it was an interesting topic. And my foray into portable alpha, there's lots of terms for this. You can give us a history lesson. Was as a bond manager, I was part of it. And I knew part of what was going on but I wasn't fully invested in the full process. So maybe paint a high-level picture. And then I think this is a nice segue from people looking at 60-40 to thinking about other types of allocations and where this idea came from. So first, let me start by giving kudos to my colleague, Rodrigo Gordillo, who came up with the term return stacking. 
we wrote a paper a couple of years ago and this was really born out of the fact that we had spent the better part of the decade trying to convince people to diversify and for all the reasons we just spent discussing no one was diversifying so when you are an alternative manager your incentive is to explain to everyone how the 60 40 isn't that great and then another year would go by where the 60 40 was the best i did the numbers the other day the average rolling one year sharp ratio for 60 40 over the 2010s was north of one now for non-quantitative listeners that's insane <laughs> <laughs> the sharp ratio is your risk-adjusted return. How much return did you get per unit of risk? I think if you ask me again, what's a reasonable expectation? I would say 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4 maybe. It was 1.2, which is absurd and the highest it ever was. So you spend enough years slamming your head against the wall, telling people why the 60-40 isn't great. And I should take that back. I'm not saying the 60-40 isn't great. I'm just saying diversification is good. And then diversification continuously proves itself to be bad in real time. We just said there's got to be a better way to acknowledge the behavioral reality of what's happening. And so there was this concept, which you mentioned, called Portable Alpha, that was born at PIMCO in the 1980s. It wasn't originally called Portable Alpha. It started in their bond department. So you'll appreciate this. And you may even know the story is the managers realized that they could take their treasury exposure and replace it with U.S. Treasury futures. Again, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but a futures contract should give you the same total return as the underlying asset minus some embedded cost of financing because it's an inherently levered asset. So if I take my $100 of treasuries and I replace it with $100 of treasury futures exposure, I might be able to free up $90 of cash because of that embedded leverage. What they realized was the return they could get on that cash at the time. They were smart about what they invested in that. The collateral was invested in short-term, high-quality corporate bonds. They could actually out-earn the embedded financing rate in the treasury futures and create, again, using air quotes for those listening, alpha, just by picking better collateral. And so they did this in the treasury portfolio. And then they went, well, everyone's trying to beat the stock market. Instead of beating the stock market by picking stocks, what if we beat the stock market by picking bonds? which is sort of an insane concept, but also insanely brilliant. So instead of buying stocks, they bought S&P 500 futures. And then they took all the cash they now had available, because again, there's that embedded leverage, and they bought bonds. And as long as those bonds beat the embedded cost of financing in the futures, they created alpha, or at least what looked like alpha. Again, we toss that term around in this industry like crazy. They just outperform the market, which is all people really care about, whether it's true alpha or not. And so that concept was something that was born at PIMCO in the 1980s. They still run mandates on it today. Uh, the one with equities in particular took off. It's called their Stocks Plus program. And it's something that got adopted by institutions at large in the early 2000s under the name Portable Alpha. The idea was to say, well, okay, PIMCO, instead of buying the S&P, they bought futures and used that cash to invest in short-term bonds. Well, what if we use that cash to invest in a hedge fund? Some sort of equity, long-short hedge fund, or I don't know, some relative value option strategy, something that hopefully truly has alpha and is completely uncorrelated with stocks and bonds. Separate alpha from beta. Try to find alpha we have high confidence in that's not just stock picking. So this approach really took off in the 2000s. 
and then ran into a complete brick wall in 2008. What basically happened is when you have all these managers who are using leverage to replace their core equity exposure, and they're taking all that freed up cash and they're investing in hedge funds. Well, in 2008, equities fell off a cliff. You had a 50% drawdown in equities. Because you're levered, those losses are real. You need to come up with the cash to manage those losses. Well, you took all your cash and put it in a bunch of hedge funds. So you have to go to the hedge funds and say, please give me my money back so that I can cover my losses, which is in effect just constantly rebalancing your portfolio. But in 2008, they had invested in a bunch of illiquid stuff and the hedge funds put up their gates and said, sorry, we're not giving your money back. And you had this massive liquidity mismatch. Portable Alpha was a pretty devastating strategy. It was very painful for a lot of institutions. And so it went out of popularity. And again, it's not because the concept is bad, it's because the implementation that happened pre-2008 was this massive illiquidity mismatch. You had a daily mark-to-market levered product that you were then taking all your collateral and putting it in this illiquid hedge fund structure that you could be prevented from getting your money back. What return stacking tries to do is it basically tries to take this same concept and put it in daily liquid vehicles. And it sort of shows up in two ways. The first is what we will call pre-stacked alternatives. So this might, for example, be a fund that for every dollar you give us, we'll give you a dollar of exposure to equities and a dollar of exposure to a managed future strategy. So if you're a 60-40 investor, you can sell some of your stocks and buy some of this fund. You maintain all that equity exposure and you get the managed futures exposure on top. So you get the alternative strategy. The idea there is we're no longer having to make that either or decision. Early on, I talked about typical diversification was an active addition through subtraction. Now it's just an active addition, which is interesting. It, it adds an additional, hopefully diversifying source of returns that can both improve portfolio return and risk, hopefully over the long run, if selected carefully. And it actually reduces your tracking error relative to that 60-40 benchmark. So it can help potentially solve a lot of those behavioral issues. So that's the first way it can be done in these pre-stacked alternatives. The second way is what we'll call capital efficient stock bond exposure. So I could, for example, put together a fund that for every dollar you give me, I'll give you a dollar of stocks and I'll give you a dollar of bonds. If you're a 60-40 investor, you could sell some of your stocks and bonds, 10% of your stocks, 10% of your bonds. So you freed up 20% of your capital. Take 10% of that, put it in this fund. Well, because again, the fund gives you a dollar of exposure to both stocks and bonds for every dollar you invest, you're getting that full 20% of stocks and bonds back, but now 10% of your portfolio is freed up. And that freed up capital, you could just invest in T-bills and just have cash sitting around, which is kind of cool, because then when you use it, you're effectively borrowing at the rates embedded in those futures contracts, or, and this is what most people do, they find something interesting to invest it in, but hopefully not an illiquid hedge fund. They hopefully invest it in whatever they want. And we have some views as to what that should be. But because this is all prepackaged and happening inside a mutual fund or an ETF, all of that rebalancing and those liquidity issues, those are all being professionally managed and all being 
prepackaged and done in a way where you're only matching liquid stuff with liquid stuff. So we're trying to completely eliminate the stuff that blew up in 2008, but keep the benefits of the core concept. Interesting. I want to dive in more into the mechanics. You mentioned just anecdotally what I saw, and we can talk way more off there about how this all came to be. But one of the things I think about is, I think it's Buffett's quote, what the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does in the end. And portable alpha, which just sounds, by the time I was being pitched it, the word felt fraudulent. You're just going to find alpha and just sprinkle it over here. It would just became magic. So you could put it everywhere. What you saw in an unwind is that's where when leverage gets introduced, you could have these really big ramifications. It's how I found auction rate securities, that there's this whole part of the market that wealthy people had been using. It sounded like they had a better deal than everybody else. And then it just blew up massively, connected to the same exact place. And so if it was a good idea in the beginning when people came up with it, it gets crushed in 08. And now it's being reintroduced and repackaged in a more sane and intelligent way, which is you learn from your mistakes. Talk to me about the risk of it. Nothing's free, and you believe that more than anyone. You're adding leverage. There is a risk embedded. How does something like this go wrong? And I think you're abstracting this away, so maybe a follow-up to that would be the funding cost. But let's just start with how does something like this go wrong? Yeah, the funding cost is a great discussion. So let's start with how does something like this go wrong? There's a quote I use all the time, which is that risk can't be destroyed, only transformed. I love this quote because I think Whenever you think something is a free lunch, other than diversification, which I could still argue there's some risk trade-offs there, like there are trade-offs you're making. So to your point about leverage, everyone in this industry, for good reason, is skeptical of leverage. If you look back at any of the major financial crises over the last 100, 200, 300 years, leverage is at the scene of the crime. Leverage is there. But the thing I usually say is it's not leverage on its own. It's concentrated leverage. When you use leverage to diversify, well, actually, those are some of the best performing strategies we've ever seen. You go look at Bridgewater's all-weather portfolio. They use a ton of leverage, but that portfolio is designed to balance the risk between stocks, bonds, and commodities in a way to try to survive any market regime. To do that, they have to hold a whole bunch of bonds and much less stocks and commodities because bonds are less volatile. So to get that to an appropriate risk level, they have to use leverage. But that doesn't make the leverage dangerous because they're using leverage to enhance the diversification of the portfolio. There are still trade-offs, though. It largely depends on the type of leverage you're using. But this ties back to what we were talking about with 2008 is if you're using the type of leverage that has daily mark to market risk, like futures contracts or swaps, you are introducing a severe path dependency. There is a potential future path where you have to come up with cash to meet basically the losses that you're realizing. And because you're levered, those losses can be much larger than the cash you have on hand. So you have to find a way to rebalance your portfolio into that. People are actually more familiar with leverage than they typically assume because any homeowner typically uses leverage. That's what a mortgage is. The difference with a mortgage is that you don't have daily mark-to-market losses, but you have borrowed a whole bunch of money to pay for your house. In 2008, suddenly a lot of those houses became worth less than people's mortgages. What did they do? 
they declared bankruptcy and walked away from the house. But imagine if that process were different. Imagine you take out a mortgage to buy your house and every day someone comes by and tells you how much your house is worth. If your house has gone up in value, you get some money in your bank account. But if your house has gone down in value, you need to pay them. And all of a sudden, a bad housing market comes around and your house keeps going down in value and down in value and down in value. And you have to keep coming up with cash to pay them. That's effectively what can happen when you're talking about trading financial leverage. Right? When you're talking about trading S&P 500 futures or treasury futures or any other futures and swaps. And so that's the risk. Now, again, it's actually not that big a risk if what's on the other side of your portfolio is highly liquid, something that you could sell down and rebalance out of. It's very dangerous if what you've done is you've taken all that money and locked it up in illiquid real estate or illiquid hedge funds. Now, the last thing I'll say is that we want to be very thoughtful again about how we use leverage. We always emphasize using leverage for diversification. But I really prefer the term return stacking over portable alpha because I think it makes it very clear all the leverage is being used to do is stack returns, A plus B. And so if I stack returns of some strategy or asset class, well, if both my portfolio and whatever I stack on top go up, great, I've made extra money. But if they both go down at the same time, not great. I've lost more money than had I not stacked. And so the risk is you have your portfolio and you stack something on top. That thing that's on top loses money well, then you've just lost money. That's unfortunately the risk. But the real risk is you lose money faster than you would have otherwise because everything goes down at once. My question had to do with what happens if efforts are correlated or if they move in the same direction. And the simple example that you had started with, you have an equity futures as part of the portfolio that you have managed futures. What happens to the situation where they're both falling at the same time and you have this leverage on how do you as the manager protect it from, and to go to your housing example, you have to declare bankruptcy. Why doesn't that happen in this type of product? Let's go with a maybe easier to understand example. And then I'll talk about the managed futures, but let's just pretend I'm using equity futures and then with a the cash, I free up buy equities. So this would be very similar to the two times levered ETFs that are out there. Basically taking my money and I've doubled my exposure to stocks. Well, those are clearly by definition, going to go up and down at the same time. So they start going down and they start going down. And what's going to happen is that I'm going to start losing money on the futures and I need to keep posting cash. Eventually, I'm going to run out of cash. But what do I have to then do? I have to sell some of my stocks to come up with cash. And so in theory, all that would happen is you would lose money twice as fast. The way you avoid catastrophe there is a subtle nuance that you have to rebalance more frequently than you would expect your portfolio to have a drawdown equal to one over the amount of leverage. Let's walk through that. You got 200% leverage. That means a 50% drawdown is going to wipe out your portfolio if you're not careful. So what you need to do is you need to rebalance your portfolio more frequently. Make sure you have enough cash on hand such that you can never experience a 50% drawdown. So there's a reason that those levered ETFs rebalance daily is because it basically prevents them from ever blowing up unless the market has a drawdown of more than 50% a day. Because even if the market goes down 30% a day and that product's down 60%, at the end of the day, it'll rebalance, sell some equities, put some more cash on the table, and you'll be well balanced again between the equities you have 
and the amount of leverage you're taking. So if everything goes down at the same time, you will lose money twice as fast in that scenario because you're two times levered. But so long as the drawdown doesn't happen so fast that you can't sell some of your underlying to come up with the cash, you don't go insolvent. The example of any of these, the funding cost, how does one know that what the funding rate is? In their mortgage, you're like, oh, I got a fixed rate. I know the number. How do you figure out what the funding rate is? There's a couple of answers there that get highly technical. Let me try to give a empirical one, maybe, to make this more palatable for a podcast. Let's say, again, we're just going to look at S&P 500 futures. If I want $100 of exposure to the S&P 500, I basically only have to put up $10 to buy $100 of exposure to the S&P 500 futures. What does that mean? That's equivalent to me saying I put up $10 and I borrowed the other 90. And so those futures should basically be the return of the S&P 500 minus the cost of borrowing that 90. So one of the exercises you can do is say, well, let me look at the long-term return of the S&P. And let me look at the long-term return of these futures. Now, unless the world is upside down, the return of the future should be less than the return of the S&P. And you can actually take the return of the S&P and subtract the return of the futures and say that difference should be more or less entirely due to that embedded cost of funding. And so what you find for something like S&P futures is historically it's been around the yield of one to three month U.S. treasuries plus about 40 bips annualized. So to put that another way, you are effectively borrowing money at the same rate as the U.S. government plus 40 bips. Today, that would be around, call it five and a half percent, significantly lower than a mortgage, significantly lower than margin. If you were to go turn on a margin at like Schwab, that would be between 10 and 14 percent. Treasury futures are similar where you just instead of the S&P, you're doing it with treasuries. Banks compete in this market. To keep it in line, they have an abundance of treasuries on their balance sheets. This is a market that they are committing arbitrage in. And so it, another way to think about this is you're getting to borrow at the same rate these banks are borrowing at, and they're getting access to the federal Fed funds window, and they get overnight repo rates. They get very low rates. They do the same exercise, treasuries versus treasury futures, or you can look at what's called the implied repo rate of the cheapest to deliver bond that underlies these treasury futures. And now I just lost everyone. <laughs> everyone just turned the podcast off. You can actually go to CME where these futures trade and actually look up this number. And what you'll find is that it's historically been very close to LIBOR or what's now SOFR, these overnight interbank lending rates. And so they're very, very cheap, very cost competitive some of the lowest financing rates you will find anywhere in the world. That does not mean, though, you can go look at a two times levered product and assume that because how people get the leverage matters. Two times the S&P should not cost you 90, 95 basis points. That's egregiously expensive. My apologies to ProShares and Direction for calling you out like that. But they are typically not implementing with futures. They're implementing with swaps, which is a derivative that is not exchange traded. It's a contract between the fund and a bank. Typically, they do this with a bunch of banks where the banks guarantee again with quotes because there's credit risk there that they're going to provide the payoff of the S&P and the embedded financing rate there is far more opaque. Wealthfront 
actually, when they launched their risk parity mutual fund, used a whole bunch of swaps for some reason that had really high embedded funding rates. And so you have to be a little careful as to how people are doing this. We're very transparent in our approach. We use futures contracts because, again, these are some of the cheapest lending markets in many ways that are available to anyone anywhere. Well, you may have lost someone with the detail. The thing that I think is interesting that why it's so special, and I'm curious how the products reacted, is that those funding rates are usually, in my opinion, the best early detection signals that something's wrong with the market. If you think about the market like a giant system and nobody can predict the future or tell you what Google's earnings can be, one of the things, and this is part of the podcast that we hope will help people is there's also things to look at to like check the temperature of the market. And it's not just CNBC flashing news update with numbers that are red. To your point, if every crisis that the culprit or that scene of the crime, there's always some source of leverage. The next thing that I look to to find out if the market's in a healthy state or if these markets are behaving. So to your point, to borrow something like a US Treasury or to borrow something like the S&P 500, one of the most liquid contracts. It can be complex, but just understand that they're super liquid. The rate should be pretty simple. And people should know like, yeah, this the treasury rates plus a little bit makes sense. As soon as that starts to act odd and those spreads start to move, somebody's in trouble somewhere and you don't know. Some hedge fund did something, some sovereign something, something broke. And it's so funny because becoming from the bond side, it's the most boring side. But when those things, I swear like to me, that's like, if you said like, what's one indicator? I'd say short-term funding markets are acting up. And that's what the Fed's always focused on. And so to drive into this point, now you're talking about macro dislocations. You've had COVID, you've had bond breaks, you've had moments where these markets act really funky. How does that affect someone like you who depends on those markets? It's not secondary to you. They need to work for you to execute what you're doing. How have you been able to navigate those that impact anything you've done? Yeah, that basis to your point, when you look at that implied funding rate or the spread between the performance of the futures market and the underlying spot market, that is a huge indicator of market stress. Let's use the treasuries as an example. Let's say treasury futures are priced expensively relative to the underlying treasuries. Well, if you're a big bank, you could every day go to the overnight window, borrow treasuries in the repo market, and then have that treasury and short sell the futures contract. And you're basically selling something that's expensive, borrowing something that's cheap, you're going to get the return minus the cost to borrow. Well, they're going to do that all day long, with the exception of if the treasuries themselves are hard to access for whatever reason, which should be weird, or there's incredible stress on the balance sheet, or for some reason, they're getting blown out on the trade. And all of a sudden, we said the treasury futures are expensive and we expect them to converge. Well, what if they keep diverging? And now all of a sudden, I need to start coming up with that capital because I've got daily mark-to-market losses. And so you can look at this stuff. And in March 2020, you had this trade blowout. You have hedge funds and banks that do this trade and lever it up massively. As bond markets began to misbehave and move very violently, and as exchanges demanded more collateral be posted to ensure that there was no counterparty credit risk, you saw these markets break. But to someone like us, it's sort of like, okay, someone really blew up there. But for me, does it really matter that the funding rate got really weird for a single day? It blew up someone's career, but I'm still just long treasury futures. My P&L is largely going to be driven by did treasury futures go up or down? And because I'm using those treasury futures to replicate owning treasuries anyway, 
well, I would have lost or gained the same amount of money, more or less holding the treasuries. Yeah, the intraday funding rate was weird, but that's not manifesting in a big change in my performance. If the funding rate goes from 1% to, I don't know, some crazy blowout, 1.1% within the day, those 10 basis points, which are annualized numbers, really impact me on a daily basis. It doesn't. And so you're 100% right in that I think those measures, whether the basis spread between treasuries and futures, or whether the actual funding rate itself, those are interesting indicators of bank health. And there's plenty of papers that show the balance sheet stress of bank show up in those funding rates for sure, because they're such active participants. But it doesn't really impact, I'm going to call the macro scale here, which is daily returns. It's just not relevant to what we are doing, really. The very simple answer is it it doesn't really impact us. The types of stuff we're putting together is able to navigate those periods very easily. I think there's a Wall Street Journal article on this recently, and it comes up now and again that some reporter finds this treasury futures trade. And I think because we're in a state where the government has issued a lot of debt, they're talking about more debt, people are worried about inflation, suddenly everyone is a macro analyst and telling you their opinion. This has come up again. And I'm curious, is that just a writer stumbling upon the story and finding out the numbers are big? Or is there actually something interesting happening where people are massively short treasuries using the future and spot market? It's hard to tell. I do believe that it is factually correct that, at least until recently, there was the maximum short position in treasury futures that there had ever been or something like that. You got to go double check those numbers. But I do believe like those numbers are correct, especially CTAs, so trend followers, bond trends have been very negative. And so they have been very short bonds. That doesn't mean, though, that they're taking the other side of the trade, buying the treasuries, and trading this basis. And that's harder to piece together. There's so many moving pieces of what's happening on Wall Street. I could be long or short a futures contract, and it doesn't mean I'm doing this arbitrage trade. It doesn't mean I'm long the bond and short the futures or vice versa and relying on this convergence of price that I'm going to blow up if they continue to go opposite directions. That's harder to determine. And unless you have a bank that's going to tell you exactly what they're doing, which they won't, I don't know how you ever really measure that trade. That's a good point. I want to talk to you about actually starting a firm and running an asset management firm and what's that. I think people know you. They think very highly of your intelligence, the podcast you have, talking about quant, letting people understand the world of quant finance and the products you're building. But I'm curious to see behind the scenes what it's like to start an asset management firm, what it's like to market. One thing I thought about preparing this was yeah, these are pretty complex topics. I think it's super interesting. I think you guys have developed really interesting products. And I was curious, there's a sales cycle. You still have to explain this to someone. If you walked into Citadel or Goldman or Fidelity, there'd be an audience that's like, oh, totally know what you're packaging. But your business model is bringing that to a much larger audience. And so I was curious to better understand what it's like to run a firm, what it's like to grow a firm. I think you just had your 15-year anniversary. Congratulations. Looking back on that, the lessons learned of starting an asset management firm from the ground up. So I have a lot of people that call me that think about launching funds. Typically at this point, they're talking about launching an ETF and they're doing it because they're very passionate about investments. I'm loath to give advice, but I'll talk about my experience. And my experience is that 
the skills that make you a good investment manager are not the skills that make you a good asset manager. Asset management is a business. Investment management, you get to sit and hopefully tinker and toy with your portfolio and dive deep and think about portfolio construction and all sorts of important nuances. Asset management is what product does the market actually want? And how are we going to package and deliver that product? How are we going to communicate it? How are we going to service our clients? So to that point, one of the things I'll often say to people is, what is your distribution plan? That is the only thing that matters. I hate to say it, but sales is the only thing that matters in asset management. Yes, you need a good product. Your returns need to be there. But we are in many ways a commoditized industry. A lot of firms are interchangeable, particularly in the retail advisor space. When you talk about bringing ETFs and mutual funds, there's only so much you can do in those vehicles. And so a lot of the strategies largely become interchangeable. So it's how are you fighting to get in front of them? One of the things I'll point out is how are you going to do your key accounts? So what that means is when you launch a fund, you're not available everywhere. You launch a mutual fund, you might not even be available on Schwab or Fidelity. If you launch an ETF, you typically are, but you're certainly not available at the wirehouses that are UBS and Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch. So you got a corner office guy at UBS who says he's going to drop $100 million day one. No, he's not. You're not getting to UBS for probably five plus years, and you're going to have to raise $100 million before you get there. I think people dramatically underestimate the carrying costs of this business. So launching a very simple ETF might cost you hundred grand to launch. And it might cost you 200 grand to run on an annual basis, but that's just the vehicle. That doesn't include any of the data. That doesn't include any of the people. Doesn't include benefits for people. Doesn't include insurance you need to carry and rent. A very small asset management firm, I'm talking like five, six people, probably costs at least a million dollars a year to run. It's just an expensive business. The other thing, took me a long time to figure out is the product you bring to market, it's not enough for it to just be interesting. It needs to work with how the people who are buying your product think about building portfolios. So one of the first funds I launched was a global equity fund. And that was just a big mistake. Because here in the US, if you talk to financial advisors, the way they think about equity is they have a US equity bucket, an international equity bucket, and an emerging market bucket. And if you are global, they don't know what to do with you. Now, I would say, well, it's simple. You sell a little US, you sell a little international, you sell a little emerging markets, and you just buy global. But it didn't fit. So really, a more concrete example today, we talked about some complex products. It's return stacking products. And I mentioned that we do it with US equities plus managed futures, or we've got a product that's bonds plus managed futures. And the US equities and the bonds are very vanilla. When I say our fund is, you give me a dollar, I'll give you a dollar of US equities, and then I'll give you a dollar managed futures. Those US equities are basically passive S&P 500 exposure. And I have a ton of people say to me, why don't you do something interesting and sexy in there? Why don't you use different quant equity strategies to try to pick stocks and find alpha? And I'm like, because that might be better on paper. But honestly, it just makes it harder for an advisor to understand. Because now they not, not only do they have to understand, okay, you've got this weird return stacking thing going on. But now I need to determine, do I like the way you're picking stocks? Do I like the way you're running the managed futures program? You're just introducing more due diligence. And again, you got to go back to advisors don't get paid money to do due diligence on funds. Advisors get paid money to manage their clients' assets and grow their business. So the more time they spend trying to understand your fund, 
the less time they're growing their business. So it's not in their interest. And so I've just personally over time changed my view as to what makes a good product. And those products to me tend to be very narrowly focused. They, they have to fit within the defined slices in which these advisors are building their portfolio. And there can only be one degree of complexity, if that makes sense. There's a spectrum. You got to be really simple or you got to be hyper complex to the point that they throw up their hands and say, I can't even do due diligence on this. And then you just got to hope performance is good. But if you're in the middle, if you're like a moderately complex product, you're in no man's land. Because it's, they're probably going to try to do due diligence, but they're not really going to understand it. They're not going to really understand where it fits. And it just ends up being in this muddied middle. And so there's a lot of art to product launches, in my opinion. It's not just what makes a good portfolio. It's what makes a good product. And those things can be very different. And I think that's really hard. And it was really hard for me to understand as I was coming up in this industry. This is a good investment concept. Doesn't matter. Doesn't necessarily make a good product. It's unbelievably good advice. I know you've said in the past of when you sit in the ivory tower and you're a portfolio manager at a big firm, like I was able to be, you really are abstracted away from a lot of this. You don't see the product. I got to work with lots of teams, but your job is to think about this one thing in this one space. And you start to understand when you go through a sales cycle or understand what people are worried about. It's not dumbing something down, but to your point, it's what are someone's incentives and objectives and what do they have time to understand? And when the product starts to go too far, there's always an inertia back to where we started. Like, well, let's just do a 60-40. There is a simple solution and they can go on to the next meeting to get the next client. And they spent a lot of time already trying to understand your story. And it doesn't matter how good it is. I think that for the investment side, that might be completely foreign to them, but someone who's actually built a business, it's what matters every day. Yeah, absolutely. I am fortunate that I get to have all these conversations, but I'll have people come to me and say, I'm thinking of launching XYZ idea. And I'm like, that sounds like a fascinating fund. Intellectually, I think that's really cool. And I understand all the moving pieces. Explain that to me in a sentence. When we buy your return stack fund, what do you do? You give me a dollar. I'm going to give you a dollar of exposure to stocks and a dollar of exposure to managed futures. Now, you may not understand. You might then say, what is managed futures? But the core concept I've tried to distill into a single sentence. If I have to say, I'm going to give you dollar stocks and a dollar managed futures, but we're also going to add some options on top. And in the stocks, we're buying this certain type of stock. If you just keep having to and, 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 it just gets way too complicated. And I have a lot of sympathy because I am one of those people who would love to sit in an ivory tower and just have fun and do the interesting machine learning, quant analysis, come up with a hundred alphas, think about interesting portfolio construction concepts. None of that necessarily makes a good product. What's a product or an idea that was pitched to you that you didn't think would work, but eventually somehow broke through that distribution wall? Or is it every time you've been able to call it like this is not going to work? I won't say I've been able to call it. There are some that I, I will say I thought were immediately brilliant. A lot of times when I talk to people, I don't even ask them about their idea. I just say, let me explain all this stuff I, I have to do that's un, not investment related. And have you thought about this stuff? And most of the time they go, ah, it turns out launching a product isn't for me. Because what they want to do is they want to be PMs. They don't want to be salespeople. They don't realize, I spend a lot of time writing research and doing that sort of stuff. And it is intellectually interesting, but a huge part of it is marketing. Let's be honest here. I wouldn't publish it if it weren't marketing. Like That's why I'm doing it. They don't want to do that. They just want to tinker in their portfolio. And that's not going to 
build a business. But things that people approach me with all the time are multi-asset portfolios. And historically, multi-asset portfolios have sold horribly, particularly in the advisor channel. And it's largely because it goes back to advisors like that siloed solution. They like, these are my stocks, these are my bonds, these are my alternatives. Within stocks, it's US international EM. Within bonds, they've got a couple of categories. And once you say, I'm going to do all of that for you in a single fund, those funds just don't tend to settle as well because the advisor feels like you're taking their job and it's not clear where it fits. Let me give you an example of something that when I heard it, I was like, this is brilliant. Not from a product perspective, but from a business perspective. It's a firm called Innovator that a couple of years ago launched what are called buffered ETFs. So they had the January buffered ETF, for example, every January buys a downside put spread. So buys a protective put and then sells a slightly further out of the money protective put for the people who, which that means nothing. They're basically buying some insurance to protect you from losses, limited in the amount, but they're buying insurance. And then to offset the cost of that insurance, they sell some upside, they sell a call. And so they say, well, if the market returns 8%, we'll give you that. Anything above that, we're going to give up. And that's going to allow us to buy this protection for free. What was brilliant, in my opinion, was it was simple. Maybe it doesn't sound simple, but it's, hey, we're going to give you the S&P 500. They're not actively picking stocks. They're not doing anything complicated. They're going, we're just going to buy this downside protection. And the protection never moved. It was always, you lose more than 5%, you're protected between 5 and I think it was 20%. After 20%, you're going to start losing money again, but we'll protect that 15 We'll have to vary how much of the upside we give up, but it'll always be zero cost in how we're structuring this. And then what was brilliant, in my opinion, is they recognized that there was a huge part of the market that was trying to get away from structured products. Advisors that had been using this buffered note concept as a structured product that were trying to go from selling single ticket structured products where they get paid a bullet payment to running a fee-based advisory business. And they took that product and they put it in an ETF. So what does that mean? It means the advisor, instead of having to continue to sell you on a structured note every year, and they take their one-time bullet payment, that fee, they can put you in this ETF and charge an annual fee. Now, that might sound a little nefarious, but it's just it allows the advisor to adapt their business model to one from ticket charges to one of recurring fees by taking that identical product and wrapping it into an ETF. Do I advocate for that product? No, everyone do your own due diligence. But from an asset management perspective, I'm like, that is brilliant. That was brilliant. And they have raised billions of dollars on that concept. I talked to someone who was early in the ETF boom before this whole land war had really been settled and had super interesting, was a really smart quant. And looking back on it, his advice was like, we were just way too complex for the market and people couldn't understand stuff that now people are pushing for the fringes of and releasing. And I think sometimes it's this push to overthink and outsmart the market and say, I've got to come up with something that no one's ever seen before. When the hard part is, it's usually the simple thing that can be explained and communicated in a way that people can understand quickly and then trust and move on. Because there's this funny level to your point of due diligence of, once you've got that trust, the switch flips. I trust you now. Go do it. But it's like click, click, click. And then it's like this roller coaster. Once you have it, now it's like, well, how fast and how easy can you make the product? Versus if you're constantly riding up the roller coaster, you never get the fun part on the way down. Eric Belchunas calls it the terror drone. That's what he calls the ETF landscape. Someone who comes to me and says, I want to launch a new stock picking ETF. I'm like, you better have a great gimmick. 
Because if you're just like, I pick better stocks, <laughs> come on. I do truly believe a huge part of this from the asset management side is a branding game. I used to work in Boston, a lot of big asset management firms in Boston. And I was what was called an ETF strategist for many years, built ETF portfolios. And so some of these large firms that were looking to enter into the ETF space would come knocking on my door and ask me my thoughts. So one of them, I remember this meeting in particular, they came by and again, they're late to the ETF game at this point. If you're a large asset manager in 2013, 2014, 2015, and you haven't launched your ETFs, you're scratching your head going where I can add value. So this firm knocks on my door and I said, well, the first question I would ask you is what is your brand? Because when someone goes to buy an ETF, they already have something in mind. They already have a position they're looking for. If you're looking for cheap beta, you're going to BlackRock or Vanguard. If you're looking for, I don't know, fundamental earnings growth or the dividend stuff, you might be going to Wisdom Tree. If you're looking for thematics, you're going to Global X. These firms have very defined brands. If you're looking for buffered products, you're going to Innovator. That's important. And so I asked this firm, what is your brand going to stand for? And they said, best-in-class managers. And I said, how many other large firms are going to come to market with the exact same brand? Do you think that's really going to have you stand out? What makes your best-in-class manager brand better than the 10 other asset managers in this town? They never launched ETFs, by the way. That's <laughs> the end of the story. But you see this. And again, I don't want to call out any particular firms, but there have been a bunch of firms that have tried to enter the space that have struggled because they've just been like, we got to find blue ocean, something away from what everyone else is doing. But the brand isn't standing for anything in particular. I would hope with the return stack stuff, when people learn about return stacking and they go, oh, this is something interesting. Okay, we're the provider. No one else is doing this really. So go to return stack DTS. That would be the goal. That's why we're doing that one unique niche thing, because we think we can do it well. And it's a unique offering in the space. But if you said, Corey, we want you to launch another quant value ETF, I'd be like, you couldn't pay me to do that. <laughs> you couldn't. How am I ever going to compete with every other value manager in the world? I admire you in a lot of ways. But one thing in particular is if you told me you were going to be in the ETF business to where it is, I'd say no small firm can survive. Because in a brand game, Patrick had a guy that's unrelated. It was such a great podcast. I think he was interviewing a guy on healthcare insurance. And he was talking about just general insurance. Why does my kid know Liberty, 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 like neutral? Like, why do they advertise so much? And his point was in this complex, massively commodity business, it was just brand. State Farm, Traveler, why are they advertising forever? And his point was like the customer can't determine what the difference is between any of them. So they have to have this brand power to trigger that thing. And I felt the same way in ETFs and to a credit to you and your firm, it's a pretty gnarly world. I mean, the amount of money that BlackRock and Vanguard, and it's true because your point, that's the asset management business. This isn't the investor management business. This is the, what are the RIAs top of mind? What are they thinking about when they think about it? And to, to break through with a ditch idea, I just give you a lot of credit because I probably would have said it's not going to work. There's just too many of them and too big. I appreciate that. I mean, to put a bow on it, you look at the big asset managers, BlackRock doesn't even do the investment management for their ETFs. They hire MSCI to do the indices. State Street hires Standard & Poor's. You look at all these, for example, equity factor funds, and you're like, they're not actually even doing the management. That is how different investment management 
and asset management are. BlackRock's ETF business is, eh, this is a little muddied now, but in a lot of it, they're not even doing the investment management. That's totally outsourced to an index provider. Little inside baseball. I think a lot of that is actually just a regulatory loophole. This is, might be unknown to folks, but the, you are not allowed to show a back test of a fund. So if I run a ETF or a mutual fund and it's actively managed, it is illegal against regulations for me to create a back test of that strategy and market that back test. Not true for mutual funds, but if I run an ETF that is an indexed ETF, the sole objective of the ETF is to track an index. If the index provider is arm's length, not the same firm, that index provider can run around and talk about that index all day long, as back-tested as they want, because index providers aren't even regulated. They live outside regulations. So I can launch an ETF and say, uh, I'm trying to track XYZ index. Go check out the back-test for that index. And you can go look at the back-test for the index. So having that index provider ETF issuer relationship in the 2010s is what allowed all these quant strategies to grow so quickly because quant strategies are easily back-tested. And so you had this growth of massive systematic strategies because they were all turned into indexes that were then tracked by these ETFs that were then hypothetical back-tested indexes were used to sell those products. That is something that we as quants should probably be pretty ashamed of. We all know better. You should not sell on a back-test, but Again, it all sort of goes to the lowest common denominator. Once someone starts doing it, it's hard to compete against because not every consumer of the product is aware how bad it is to buy something based on a back test. Huh. I did not know. I knew about the arm's length only in another way where in this race to zero fee for the truly commoditized, everyone started to take the indices in-house. So instead of like the S&P, it's like, the Schwab 500 or the Fidelity 500 because they're like that abstraction of fees and how many people, the calculation agent, the index provider, there's just so many people charging to go to zero. You're like, oh, I'll just calculate the index myself. But now I understand why for the systematic, for the thematic ones, all these people that are trying to create the more expensive ETFs, why they have this, oh, I launched an index and now I can show you. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's in. Interesting regulatory loophole that I would have assumed would have been closed based on how much FINRA hates backtests. Yeah. And I still don't understand how an index provider doesn't have to be regulated by the SEC. How an index provider is not providing investment advice is beyond me. But the argument is, well, the fund company selected that index and therefore the fund company is ultimately providing the investment advice. Okay. I mean, I just assume MSCI and S&P have brilliant lobbyists because I can't understand that one at all. I'm going to go with yes. I definitely know there's been questions about this. The SEC has poked around a lot with the hypothetical and perspective performance, but I'm going to guess there's a lot of powerful people who like the way it is right now and they're going to change it, but maybe someday. Exactly. This has been a lot of fun and I don't have my ending question, so I'm working on it. But this is something, a question I love talking to smart people about, which is, and it brings you back to where you start with the religion of Graham and Dodd of speculation versus investing. And I find it to be just an interesting question of how people think about that spectrum and how they think about the difference between the two. I think you've done a really nice job laying out a framework that people have faith and beliefs, but I'd be curious just to get your take on how would you define the difference between the two? I think it's, I'll kick it off by saying, I think people use speculation as a pejorative, not an investor. And investing, well, that must be based on something, but perhaps it's just people looking through their own religious lens. 
This is a great question. I'll keep it. That I haven't given a tremendous amount of thought to. And I wish I had a really good answer. My intuition, and I'm just going off my gut here, is I think I think of speculation as purely based upon sentiment. Now, I'm going to get back to this. Whereas investing is based upon fundamentals. Give a really simple answer. I think the S&P 500 goes up over the long run because of earnings growth. If I invest in the S&P 500, planning on taking my money out in 50 years, I think that's investing. If the S&P 500 is valued at PE of 15, and I think that's too cheap, and I buy with a plan on selling at the PE of 25, that's a reversion of sentiment. And to me, that's speculative. And that's just one example. But that would be how I would think about breaking this down, is that to me, investing is in the fundamentals of something. If I'm buying purely for price appreciation, because I think someone's going to value it more than me, not that its value is going to go up, but someone's going to value it more than me. That to me is a sentiment repricing. That is speculation. Whereas if I'm buying something because I think the fundamental trends of it are improving, or I believe there is fundamental growth that I will benefit from, that is investing. So I would say most of what hedge funds do God, this is a hard one. Like, what do I say about that basis trade earlier? When you're doing pseudo statistical arbitrage, was well, that speculation or investing? Keeping markets in line, is that speculation or investing? I don't have a good answer, but that's the breakdown in my head is sort of, is it fundamental or is it sentiment? I like it. I'm going to keep that question. Well, Corey, thank you for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. Eric, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.